Hi everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of The Hope Machine. I'm Victoria Reid from Asthma UK and the British Lung Foundation. Once again, today we're going to be shining the light on some of the incredible research that's giving real hope to people with lung conditions across the UK. Now, it wasn't too long ago that none of us had even heard of a lateral flow test, never mind taken one. In today's episode, Professor Richard Boddy tells us about the amazing UK response to develop new tests for COVID-19 and how his work to test the tests is helping diagnose conditions like COVID more quickly and more accurately. We'll also meet Professor Louise Wayne. She's a geneticist looking at whether tiny differences in our DNA sequences could make us more or less likely to develop lung conditions like COPD and pulmonary fibrosis. She's even hoping to be able to predict what symptoms people will go on to get. So some pretty amazing stuff coming up. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, we are a charity, so we're only able to support this kind of research thanks to people like you. If you're able to make a donation to our research appeal, we'd really appreciate it. Just visit asthma.org.uk forward slash hope machine. And now let's get the ball rolling. We'll hand over to Ian Gerald from Asthma UK and the British Lung Foundation, who's with our first researcher. Hi, Rick. Thank you very much indeed for spending some time with us today to talk about your research. Before we talk about your research, I had a couple of questions I wanted to ask you so we can just get to know you a little bit better. So first of all, what would you have been if you hadn't have been involved in medicine and research? Well, that's a really tough question because I can't imagine not doing medicine or research because I love it so much. But mm. I guess if I had to choose, I would probably be a teacher. My parents were both teachers, actually, and um, I really admired what they did. They worked very, very hard for a living and a very, very fulfilling job. Second question, can you tell us something that you're either really good at or really bad at? Mm, well, I can tell you something that I do, and you'd have to ask other people whether I'm really good at it or really bad at it. So I'm a church organist, actually. Uh, I play the, the, uh, the pipe organ and the piano at uh, our weekly mass. I was self-taught on the organ. You'd have to ask the congregation whether I'm good or bad at it. I, I'm not sure I'd like to hear the response. <laughs> Final question in this section then. If travel was completely unrestricted and you had some time off, where in the world would you head off to first? Well, when I was a medical student, I had the pleasure of doing my elective uh, in, a, in the Bahamas, in Nassau. Wow. Uh, it was obviously very tough, but uh, that, if I could choose one place to go back to, it would be Nassau and the Bahamas. Absolutely lovely, gin clear waters, perfect white sands. That would be where you, you would find me, on the beach in the Bahamas. You know, when the pandemic hit, obviously, you know, COVID-19 causes a variety of respiratory symptoms initially, which is, you know, what makes that interesting to us as a charity. And we also know that people with lung disease are more vulnerable of developing serious illness in COVID. So we've been very interested in this area for, for those reasons. But in terms of how testing develops, is it the case that lots of different companies or researchers just start developing tests when a pandemic life like this hits or were there already tests around that needed to be adapted how did that kind of work in terms of developing tests yes well it was actually a pretty impressive effort internationally within just a couple of weeks of uh, the first cases being identified the virus had been isolated and its genetic sequence had been published online open access and then the first pcr assay 
was reported online, the method for the first PCR assay. That was done within just a couple of weeks. But then industry has to respond and make those assays commercially available so that we can scale up and, and test patients across the world to decide if they have or have not got infection with the virus. And by April of 2020, there were around 250 CE marked tests for COVID-19 already. There were wow. point of care tests that you can use in near patient environments. There are lab tests that you can use to do the definitive PCR. So we really know very accurately whether someone has infection or doesn't. And that's an absolutely incredible response. But obviously within that, there are going to be some tests that are less accurate than others. And so it's really important that we did a piece of work to try and understand how the tests are working, how accurate they are, what are the different considerations for how we might use them, and how might we best apply them in clinical practice to make decisions about patient care? I mean, yeah, that, that is phenomenal, that idea that that many tests were developed in such a short space of time. How did you go about assessing these different tests? This was the privilege of being part of this national collaboration. We had a massive network of experts who are really used to working to evaluate different diagnostic tests. And, you know, the one thing that was, it was a fabulous coincidence, that we all had complementary expertise. So in Leeds, we had a team of laboratory scientists that are so used to evaluating how tests work in the lab. You know, what's the smallest amount of virus that the test can detect? Then we've got in, in Oxford, a team that looked at primary care. How do tests work in the community and GP surgeries and other uh, community areas? In Manchester, we brought expertise for how to run large studies in hospital so we could see how do the tests actually work in, in the hospital environment. In Newcastle, we had teams of methodologists, so statisticians and health economists and people who are experienced at looking at care pathways. In London, we have the team at Imperial that are really good at looking at usability of tests. And then lastly, I said one more, we've got the team in Nottingham that we brought in. And really importantly, they allowed us to tap into the care home network and see how the tests work specifically within the care home environment. Amazing. So, for example, when I send off for my lateral flow tests that I do at home because I've got a son who goes to school and I, you know, we want to check that our household you know, isn't infected. Is it the case that the work you've done has helped select what test I get sent? Yes, it did. So in fact, that wasn't originally part of our proposal because nobody foresaw that we'd all be doing self-testing for a pandemic virus. But in August of 2020, the government launched the Moonshot programme and we were really privileged to play an important role in the Moonshot programme. And our role was to help to recruit participants who we knew had COVID-19 and they tested positive in the community and we called them back to testing centres. We asked them if they would provide us with an extra swab and we would run the lateral flow tests essentially at testing centres. It was set up in record time. I mean, it would usually take six months to set up a study like that. We did it in days and within a little bit more than a month, We'd recruited over 800 participants who had kindly come back to give us these swabs. Incredible effort from the population. And that allowed us to evaluate four different tests that were satisfactorily sensitive. They met the criteria for us to use them in practice. So there's a good chance that if you order that lateral flow test for self-testing for you and your family, that we looked at that in the Condor programme. This is really life-saving work. I can totally see how getting accurate and quick results in in the relevant settings can can save people's lives and, and will have saved people's lives which is incredible 
just thinking a little bit, you know, beyond this pandemic, clearly we know that viral infections can cause worsening of symptoms in existing lung diseases like asthma and like COPD, for example. What would you say to anyone watching or listening to this interview who might be wondering what the benefits might be in future for people with lung conditions for this kind of work? You know, is this going to enhance our ability to test and diagnose for future viral infections, future pandemics? Yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, there are some really important things that we need to learn from our response to this pandemic. Who would have known that, you know, we'd have been doing lateral flow tests at home or twice a week in the NHS to go into work and keep people safe. But respiratory viruses are going to be here forever. And now the shift for this this winter is to looking at other viruses as well. So what about influenza? What about RSV, another common virus that causes important infections for people, particularly with lung disease or for children? It can cause a lot of problems in hospital admission. It's going to be possible going forward to test for all of those viruses with one single test. So a focus for this winter is actually to start looking at how accurate are those, we call them multiplex tests that are looking at multiple viruses. Amazing. I mean, I, I definitely speak for everyone who I work with at Asthma UK and the British Lung Foundation and also all of our supporters who we're all very, very proud to have played a part in supporting this work and seeing that it's having a really positive beneficial effect in how we've tackled this pandemic and, you know, trying to make sure that we've been able to care for people as best as we could under really, really difficult circumstances. We're going to finish now with a little bit of a challenge. Hopefully it's a fun challenge. And I'm going to ask you if you can explain the Condor project and this research study in about 60 seconds or less and explain it so simply that a child of nine could understand it. So one of the most important things about controlling levels of infection with COVID-19 is testing, knowing whether someone has COVID-19 quickly. So our job in the Condor programme was to work out if rapid tests for COVID-19, tests that can give us a result within minutes or hours, could actually be used to guide patient care. So what we looked at is whether the tests work in a lab. Can we detect really tiny amounts of the virus, for example? Do they work in hospitals and GP surgeries and care homes when the clinical staff actually use them? Are they still accurate? Are they usable? Can people actually get to the grips with how to use the tests? Or are there problems with that? And then lastly, how can the tests improve the decisions that we make about patient care? So what are we doing right now? And what if we had a new test? How would patient care be improved because we've got a rapid test for COVID-19? Well, thanks again, Rick. It's been really great talking to you about this amazing work. Best of luck with your future work. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what further impacts it makes. So yeah, thanks again and good luck. Thanks very much. Much appreciated. Much appreciate your support. Big thanks to Ian and, of course, to Rick as well. Such an impressive response from the scientific community and great potential for identifying lung infections much more quickly in the future. If you're enjoying the show today so far, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Just before we head over to meet our next researcher, here's Cheryl Routley from Asthma UK and the British Lung Foundation with something I bet you didn't know. didn't know that we're helping to develop new treatments that kill asbestos-related cancer, mesothelioma. 
Mesothelioma is a rare and aggressive type of cancer usually caused by exposure to asbestos dust. For a long time, there was no change in the type of treatment offered to people with mesothelioma. This chemotherapy treatment is really toxic and wasn't shown to be particularly effective. New treatment options are desperately needed. Back in the early 2000s, we struggled to spend donations we'd been given on mesothelioma research. Researchers just didn't seem engaged in this field. So we've worked hard to build up interest in the research community and award funding that has allowed researchers to push forward for progress and give better outcomes for people affected by mesothelioma. To do this, we've worked with organisations interested in funding mesothelioma research, like the insurance industry and other charities. We've also had gifts from generous individuals, some small and some large, but every penny counts. Now there are many researchers interested in mesothelioma, some working in the laboratory and some working directly with patients. The research community are working together to understand mesothelioma better, to develop new ways to diagnose it and new treatments. People with mesothelioma now have real hope to live longer and live better and that's something we can be really proud of. Well, hi, Louise. Thanks very much for joining us today to talk about your research. Um, before we do that, I just had a few questions I wanted to ask you so we can get to know you a little bit better. First of all, what would you have been if you hadn't been involved in medicine and research? I think it would have been something to do with horses because I love horses and I have horses now. So I'm kind of doing that at the same time as I'm doing research, which is I'm very lucky. Yeah, that's great. You get to the best of both worlds, it seems. So can you tell us something that you're either really good at or something you're really bad at? Well, there's probably lots of answers to what I'm really bad at. So we're redecorating at the moment and actually I'm better at painting walls than I thought I was going to be. My husband thinks I do a good job. I didn't think I was going to. So yeah, I'm not bad at painting, but I'm not offering myself out for that by the way <laughs> and lastly if travel was completely unrestricted and you had some time off where in the world would you like to head off to first so i really love the jungle i've been to the jungle in peru and in mexico so i think i'd probably want to go back to sort of central south america sounds great actually it won't be too long until we can do that kind of stuff again as the british lung foundation chair of respiratory research at the University of Leicester, your work is all about better understanding the genetic factors that contribute to the risk of developing respiratory disease. And your work is focusing mainly on two conditions in particular, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which are both big mouthfuls. Can you tell us a little bit about each of those conditions? Yeah, so uh, I'll start with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So this is where the alveoli, the little structures at the, at, in your lungs that allow the oxygen to get from the air you breathe into the bloodstream, they get kind of furred up, they, they scar up, uh, which means that they don't work as well. 
and this is really bad. It's a terminal disease. Most many people that have it don't survive much longer than than three, three to five years after diagnosis, which is actually worse than many cancers. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is a much more common disease. Lots of people have heard of it. Uh, it's most common amongst people who have smoked or who do smoke, but actually also affects people who don't smoke or who might be exposed to other inhaled uh, pollutants in the air. I know you're looking at the DNA of people who have IPF and people who don't have IPF and also then looking at the DNA of people who have COPD and the DNA of people who don't have COPD. So am I right that you're looking to try and identify any genetic differences that might explain why some people go on to develop to develop COPD or some people go on to develop IPF and others don't? Yeah, absolutely. So most of our DNA is the same as identical between us but every so often throughout these long chains these long double helixes that people helices that people are used to uh, associating with dna there can be a difference and we're looking for where those differences actually might increase somebody's chances of developing either ipf or copd and then where we find those differences we can use those as a signpost to particular genes that are sequences within our dna that encode the proteins or the building blocks of our body and we could potentially use that to then understand why the disease is happening and try and find new ways of, of treating it. And have you like gathered any clues so far that you can tell us about? Yeah, so for COPD, uh, we've identified more than 300 uh, positions within our DNA that are different between people who have good lung function versus those that have bad lung function and that we think are important in terms of, or we know are important in terms of accounting for some of the risk of developing COPD. And those signals point to lots of different genes and pathways. And with collaborators, we're in the process of going through those genes and trying to identify which ones can tell us something useful about the disease, why we're seeing those associations uh, with the disease, and then how we can use that knowledge Similarly for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, the challenge there is because it's a less common disease, which is good, it means that the sample sizes in the studies that we that we can access are actually a lot smaller, which means that we haven't identified as many associations in the DNA yet, but we're getting there and we're trying to get bigger and bigger studies so that we can find out more genes. So we've got more avenues of research to go down. I think you're also comparing the DNA of people who have the same diagnosis. So people who have, for example, COPD, but who have very different symptoms. Can you tell me what you're hoping to understand by doing that work? Yeah, so if we compare people who have disease versus those who don't, we're looking at factors that might uh, predispose somebody to developing the disease. But if we look within the disease, for example, at genetics, genetic variants that are associated with how long somebody survives after they get the disease, that might tell us about some different processes that are also important in disease. So we're looking at um, features such as decline in lung function over time, so how your, how your breathing changes over time. We're looking at the age that people get diagnosed. We're looking at how long they survive after diagnosis and also the number of times that they perhaps go into hospital if they have a, a flare up of their disease that makes them sort of very, very poorly. Someone's own DNA might be able to tell us, you know, about what the future holds for them. Perhaps, you know, we might be able to give them a more 
detailed prognosis about what their disease might look like going forward. Is that right? Hopefully. Yeah, that, that's the aim. I mean, for many people, when they have their first diagnosis, it's, it's hard for a doctor to tell them exactly what's going to happen over the next few months or over the next few years. And that's particularly important for a disease like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, where for many people, survival time is sadly very short after diagnosis. So if we can use genetic information to give some insight as to whether someone is likely to you know, have, a, have certain symptoms more often than other symptoms or is likely to have a, a faster decline in their health, this could help in terms of decisions about what treatments to do first or also mm. just to help with uh, the patient coming to terms with, with what's going to happen to them. So, you know, in terms of looking to the, the future, what do you hope that the real world impacts of this work might be in the future and how it might change diagnosis or treatment or prognosis for patients who are diagnosed with COPD and IPF? I think for me, the, the main aim is to identify new treatments. So using the information to identify a new way of uh, intervening on the disease to stop it uh, and to, or to reverse it. You know, the drugs that are available for, for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis at the moment, for example, they don't reverse the disease. They only slow it down. Similarly for COPD, you know, we don't have treatments that stop COPD. Uh, we have treatments that make people feel a little bit better while they've got it. But what we really want to do is identify a drug that will stop the disease or reverse it completely. Amazing. I mean, that that is absolutely, you know, where we hope to see research go in future. So I know from my friend's children that a lot of children do coding at school, so they understand a little bit about computer coding. And actually DNA, it's a lot like computer code in that it encodes all of the things that make us human. So what I do is I look for the errors in that code, in the DNA, which is our computer code, and try and identify where it's gone wrong and why it's caused, causing some people to develop certain diseases. And then if we can figure that out, we can use that information to understand which people are likely to get disease and then hopefully find new ways of treating it. Well, thanks so much for spending some time with us today, Louise. It's been really great talking to you and really great to hear about your amazing research. Good luck for the, the rest of your project and good luck for your future research. And I'm really looking forward to seeing um, where it goes in future and what benefits for patients arise. So thanks a lot and best of luck. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Ian. It was great talking to you. And thanks to uh, British Lung Foundation Asthma UK for all the support. Thanks so much, Ian and Louise. Really exciting work, which offers so much hope of better treatments for people with COPD and IPF. And thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support more amazing research projects like the ones you've heard about today, please do consider making a donation if you can. There's more information in the description of this episode, or you can go to asthma.org.uk forward slash hope machine to support our work. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. That's all from us today. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.